Good morning, church. Well, for the first time in my 13 years of ministry, there is a scheduled power outage, so it's best that we stay home. It comes on the heel of the first pandemic that I've ever dealt with in my ministry, which unfortunately did train us with the ability to be able to do our services on live stream. So we have the ability to at least be together, even though we won't have power on Sunday. So thank you for, for joining us. And I hope that this is a time of encouragement that you get a chance to chat perhaps a little more than I know that many of you have been showing up in person lately, but maybe you can engage on the chat uh, more than you have. And we're just thankful to have the opportunity and the technology. Thank you to Philip Sanchez, especially, and to everybody who volunteered to get this service together so that we could be together, uh, not in person, but online. This morning, I want to spend time thinking about something that I think is a bit of a conclusion to my series on love uh, covering an offense. We're going to do one more in that series next week, but it's a little bit of a different angle. So as we conclude thinking about this this topic, that that love uh, covers over an offense, I want to talk about something that I think is really critical uh, in our time. And it's a concept that comes from the wisdom literature that you find uh, in the Old Testament. And the wisdom literature is mostly toward the the middle of the Old Testament. And it's basically this kind of instruction. It's varied in how it's presented and how to live a wise life. What does it look like for you to live in certain ways, to have principles that would help you to live a life that someone down the road would go out, you know, really impressed by that person. That person has lived a wise life. A person is is upright and seems to be doing the right thing. So what does it look like to live with this kind of wisdom? There's one idea that comes up throughout this literature that's interesting. It's this Hebrew word, hathol. Go ahead and say it from home with me. Hathol. Hathol is a word that you find multiple times throughout the wisdom literature. For example, in the book of Job, Job says, Surely Hathol surround me, my eyes dwell on their hostility. The beginning of Psalms, the the first Psalm that is there says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of Hathol, but whose eyes are on the Lord. And it's interesting, especially when you read it in the Psalm passage there, the other two I think we have a bit of an understanding of a wicked person. That's somebody who is trying to destroy the world for whatever reason. Someone who is bent on on doing evil things with his or her life. And then a sinner. I mean, we all recognize that there is sin and brokenness in all of us, but the hope is that we are moving in positive directions from those things, that we aren't continuing to struggle with the same sins forever. We will always be sinners and imperfect, but we're trying to avoid that. And there's this other word that we don't necessarily even think about all that much. And in your Bibles, it's likely translated something like mockers. So, Blessed is the one who doesn't sit among mockers, who doesn't let his or her heart be surrounded by the comments or the things that someone who is making a mockery of life might say. 
And as I think about a word that has some parallel uh, to this word and the understanding of, of this, I would say that it's a cynic. Cynicism is something that I think in our world is a bit of a cherished virtue. And it's interesting that if you put that word, like watch out for people who are wicked, watch out for sinners and watch out for cynicism. And in fact, in the book of Proverbs, there are 31 chapters. People say uh, you should read it um, every single day. And throughout the month, you'll be able to read a proverb every single day, even in the months that go to 31 days. And out of these 31 chapters in Proverbs, this word hathul or mocker is found 16 times. And it's someone to be avoided. It's something to like guard your heart against. A cynic, as defined by Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is a person who believes that people are motivated purely by self-interest rather than acting for honorable reasons. Honestly, as I read that, a person who believes that people are motivated only by self-interest and not for honorable reasons, I think people do believe that generally today. That there isn't any noble people out there. Everyone's in it for themselves. And it's easy for us, I think, to adopt this mindset and to think that it is the way that we should view the world. The philosophy of of cynicism actually comes from around the third century. There was a group of people who decided that there was just no way to live a virtuous life if you were surrounded by stuff. And so they denounced everything. Sometimes would go and live outside the city. Sometimes they would stay among uh, the city and, and beg. But the idea was that the only way to be virtuous is just to denounce everything, walk away from it all, and basically live a life of poverty. And that word cynic, actually, the, the Greek word for it is, is dog-like. And so people think that the word was originally a slam to describe this group of people that were just begging on the side of the road like the other dogs uh, would have been uh, in that time. So it's a very interesting idea that it comes from this group of people who denounces everything. And I think what eventually it starts to become and understood as is that you really just can't trust anybody. Nobody's like that good. Nobody has like really honorable intentions all the time, right? Nobody really has a pure motive. No one is going to actually like do these things without having some sort of, of selfish motive tied into it. The world's just not that good. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24 says, the proud and arrogant person, mocker is their name, behaves with insolent fury, behaves with an arrogance and anger because it's easy for for you to think that you're the one that can stand back and look at things uh, with virtue while nobody else seems to understand it. And so it's easy for us all to to stand back and and critique things that we see. One of my 
favorite segments on late night TV shows. I don't not watch them all that much. You know, you see them on YouTube uh, from time to time is the Jimmy Kimmel bit uh, where celebrities read mean tweets, where people have said something on Twitter from the safety of their couch about some celebrity and the celebrities come on camera and they, they read these mean tweets to kind of show the world, hey, we're human too. And this, this is hurtful. One of the segments had um, Selena Gomez reading and the comment said, Selena Gomez is on the radio right now. Is there a volume? lower than mute. Then Larry King. I saw Larry King at dinner, or it could have just been a run-of-the-mill goblin. My Asian orthodontist says Jessica Beale has horse teeth. Wow, David Arquette got old. I'm not being mean, but why does Anderson Cooper remind me of dinosaurs? And the list goes on and on, and the celebrities read these and then look somewhat sadly into the camera. And unfortunately, I think we have the opportunity to just sit back and, and be a critic and critique everything. You have a social media account where you get to put all of your ideas up and we get a chance to actually feel like what it is to have a platform because you might only have you know 50 friends on Facebook, but when you put something up, they, they like it every once in a while. And so like your ideas feel important. And so you have this position to critique the world. I think it's easy for us all to be like that, to stand back, to not truly enter in and to just say, oh, I could be doing it better. I could make a better movie like that one best picture. I could do something better than that. And my response to that would be like, okay, try. Do you know how hard making a movie is? I see how hard it is to produce a church service. Like how difficult would it be to actually like have an idea and, and work among other people and make it happen? It's incredibly difficult. There's something happening right now that I see with people around my age and people really of all ages right now. Economists are calling what's happening right now the great resignation Many, many people are changing jobs. I think the estimate is that as much as half the workforce is going to change jobs uh, within the next year or maybe year and a half. I don't remember exactly what the right number is, but a lot of people are changing jobs. In this last month alone, I think 5% of the workforce resigned, some to not even take a position uh, in something else. I think Part of that is due to the pandemic. People are tired and it's been an exhausting time to work, no matter what kind of work it is that you're doing. But what's interesting is that as I have conversations with people, these are people in our church, like really, really good uh, people who I have conversations with and get to talk with about their work or their job and what's happening and perhaps why it is that, that they're quitting. And generally, I would say it comes down to, to two things. Number one, the bosses or the leadership or whatever just doesn't get it. Like they have no understanding of the direction of it is just horrible. And I could do better. I think that I should go somewhere else that has like a better understanding of things. And secondly, um, I just work too hard. It's, it's 60 hours a week. It's just way too difficult. I think those sometimes there's a combination of those two things are why many people and it's people that I love and respect. And when they tell me some of the specifics about what's happened at their job, I go, yeah, I think I probably would do the same thing. That sounds really hard. But I wonder, 
if the grass really is always greener. And if you are going to, you know, take a new step, start a new career, do something different with your life, perhaps that is really what you're called to do. But you do recognize that anything that you do, it's going to have some difficult stuff with it. And part of that is the dysfunction of the system or, or whatever it is. And some of the problems that somebody has or someone that is outside of you has, that is certainly true. But it's also because of some of your own dysfunction. It's also some of my own dysfunction. And I wonder at times if it's because we sit in this seat where we get to scoff and mock and not necessarily enter in. There's a sociologist named Paul Vischer who says this about our generation. Uh, For me and many others in my generation, the real root of our cynicism is personal. When we were very young, our parents broke their promises, their promises to each other and their promises to us. And millions of American kids in a very short period of time, learn that the world is in a safe place, that there isn't anyone who won't let you down, that their hearts were much too fragile to leave exposed. And sarcasm, as C.S. Lewis once put it, builds up around, around a person the finest armor that I know. For those of us who experienced a lot of divorce in our lives among our parents and our friends, For others who've experienced trauma and pain, I think it's easy for us all to say, is it really worth trusting again? Is it worth putting myself out there? Because every time I do, I get burned. And it's exhausting. And it's hard. So it's easier to just stand on the sidelines and say, I'm just going to take a few plays off. And a few plays often turns into months and years. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians says, it is time for us to be skeptical of our own skepticism Proverbs 14.6 says, The scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge comes easily to the discerning. The mocker who wants to stand on the sideline and seek some higher form of, of virtue and stand on the side and, and not enter in and not trust and not be faithful. It's easy to just stand on the side and not enter in to truly what you're called to do. If you are a Christian and you have a calling on your life, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're watching this. I'd love for you uh, to get in touch uh, with me or with our church. But if you are a Christian, let's recognize together that we are following a savior who gave his life away. And Jesus did a glorious thing. There was a huge cost. And that does not mean you need to stay at your work for your entire life. That's not true. But what part of your life are you willing to stay committed to? Even when it's hard. When the going gets tough. 
when you maybe after a while are just like not really feeling the same way about it. May you, may, may I not choose to just sit on the sideline and critique, but choose to enter in. I think of a story that happened as, as Jesus is on his way to the cross in the gospel of John. He is knowing that his time is about to be over. And he's in this, this meeting with some important religious leaders and his disciples are there too. And there's a woman named Mary who comes in and she ends up breaking this expensive perfume. She pours it on Jesus's feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. And this, I would argue, is the most beautiful act of worship perhaps recorded in scripture. We can debate about that later, but this is an unbelievable moment. She comes in and she breaks this perfume and washes Jesus's feet, which is something that the hosts of the party haven't done. We know how important and how dirty feet got. And so you would wash the feet of people as a way of welcoming a guest. And she does it with this expensive perfume. And then she does something a little crazy. She lets her hair down and wipes it with her hair. You're not supposed to do that if you're a woman in that society. So this is just like an unbridled, just letting it all go for God. And there's, someone in the room, actually many in the room, I think, who aren't too happy about this. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This story bothers me because if I'm honest, I can so easily side with Judas. And anytime you're on team Judas, you got to think about your priorities for a minute. But think about him in this scene. He, he's, he's sitting in the corner. He, he sees this act of worship. And he chooses to look at it critically. And what's truly scary to me about this is I think he makes a valid point. Shouldn't we go? This is a year's wages. Think about like if, if somebody just extravagantly wasted a, a year's wages. Yeah, we could have started a homeless ministry. We could have used that you know, in, in so many different ways. We could have done different things with it. But the problem is not with this woman and her gift. It's with Judas and his heart. And what I think is, is truly scary about this story is he says in some corner of the room, he says the virtuous thing. And then the scripture tells us, but he didn't have a virtuous heart. 
And what an indictment. There have been times when I've said the virtuous thing, when I didn't have a virtuous heart. And how scary is it to imagine being that close to Jesus and just missing the whole point? Because for Judas, he has some sin in his life. He's greedy. He's keeping some of the money. And so he's willing to take a few extra bucks here and there. And because of of his sin and brokenness, he's now going to comment to try and make himself look virtuous. Because let's be honest, Judas has been let down before by Jesus. I think he had expectations like everyone did at that time that Jesus was going to be this, this earthly king and sit on this throne of power. And he hasn't started to do that. In fact, he keeps talking about giving his life away and how he's going to die. And so Judas is continually on this journey of being more and more distant from Jesus. He's frustrated and he's not willing to to give things the benefit of the doubt. And he's not willing to think about like, what is the heart here? What's the reason that she did this? Why could her heart have been in the right place and mine in the wrong place? I just don't know how often we have the humility to ask that question. Could his heart or or could her heart, could, could they be in the right place and mine in the wrong one? One way that I think you can diagnose this in yourself is just asking yourself the question, are you curious? When you see something perhaps that, that you don't agree with or that you're you know, willing to like, say something off to the side about, are you willing to be curious and ask the question, you know, perhaps that isn't his motivation. Perhaps that's not her motivation. Are you willing to enter into life with, with more curiosity and to understand that it isn't just always how you perceive things to be. And isn't that a much better way to live? Isn't it a better way to live when you actually, you know, you look at life thinking, you know, I just, I don't know what's going to happen next. And just because this person acted this, this one way, this one time doesn't mean that they're going to continue acting that way. And let me ask questions. You know, why is it that you act? Why did you do this? Why did you like participate in this? And instead of just making assumptions, Again, I'm very often on team Judas here where I can just like point out something that perhaps is a flaw in somebody else instead of really truly thinking like, what do you think their motivation was? I think it's easy for us to be cynical and to stand back because we've put ourselves out there before We've been burned. It hurts. But what is it that you're protecting yourself from? What if you're actually protecting yourself 
from real joy. As I think about a time in my life where I experienced some, some of the greatest joy of my existence, it was playing high school baseball. And for those of you who have heard many of my sermons, I was not very good. I was, I was terrible. I often gave up very long home runs and it was an experience that in some ways was, was humiliating and difficult. And I failed more than I succeeded. But as I think about that time in my life and what it was to play, I just have fond memories about what it was like to struggle through that. And have that experience. I think about the, the struggles that I've experienced as a church leader. And I think about the, the people who, who have been there along the way. When we sit and chat about some of those things, we talk about it like with joy, even though it was hard. And even though we would say, oh, I, I wish we didn't have to go through that one again. But I'm thankful in some ways for the struggle. I think one of the problems with cynicism and with this understanding of, of mocking and just looking at every part of life is that it just ends up as so judgmental. When something happens that's, that's bad, it's just so easy to, to label it bad and to not find the good. Or even when something happens that's good, it's easy to think, well, well pretty soon something bad is about to happen. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite scholars and theologians, he says, there's a radical difference between cynicism and joy. Cynics seek darkness wherever they go. They point to approaching dangers, impure motives, and hidden schemes. They call trust naive, care romantic, and forgiveness sentimental. They consider themselves realists who see reality for what it truly is and who are not deceived by escapist emotions. But in belittling God's joy, their darkness only calls forth more darkness. My friends, may we be very careful about guarding our hearts through cynicism. May we understand that the book of Psalms listed next to sinners and wicked people are those who just sit back and scoff and belittle the pursuits of everyone else. Your life isn't perfect. Your job isn't perfect. Our church isn't perfect. There are so many things that perhaps if you choose to sit in them and focus on them and, and just critique them, that you are going to find wrong. Again, what if what you're protecting yourself from is real joy and being on a curious adventure, not sure what's next? I think about the book of Hebrews, how it says about Jesus that he went to the cross for the joy set before him. That's where I just think, what is that talking about? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. He went to something 
hard and, and difficult, something that would cost him everything, something that right before it's about to happen, he says, please like take this cup from me. But he did it because of the joy set before him. May we have a commitment to things that matter. And may we choose to enter in even sometimes when it gets hard, when, when the struggle is real, when things are, are difficult for us, but may we choose to not stand back and protect our hearts. Because I think that learning trust and joy is a true foundation point for happiness. May we not choose to be mockers, but to enter in. Let's pray. God, I pray for all of us as we are often tempted to choose cynicism and to just pretend that we know all the motives of everybody else without being curious, without asking good questions. May we choose things that are worth giving our lives to. And may we stay on course toward those things, even as they're sometimes hard. Father, may we live with courage and curiosity as we face every single day. In your son, Jesus, name I pray. Amen.